This week's show is special for several reasons. First, it's our first in-person recording since the pandemic hit, and we're recording from the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians in uh, central Minnesota. We made this trip to record with our special guests, Monty Frank and Missy Whiteman. You're in for a deep and emotional show. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, recently retired from Metropolitan State University, associate of Dendros Group and cultural consultant. I'm Anthony Galloway, executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and senior partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. Uh, Luz Marie Freyas was unable to join us because we are meeting for the first time since this pandemic hit in March of last year, 2020. And I think almost from the time that we left NPR, we are actually in person. So this is the first time I've seen Halili and Anthony Galloway in person for well over a year. And it's not just the fact that we're together for the first time in person. We are doing this recording up at the Mille Lacs Band Indian Reservation in one of their office buildings. We're at the Government Affairs Building in Wakan, Minnesota. And so the fact that we're doing it live, we're doing it in person, and we were out of town, and Luz Marie Freya's job being a deputy state attorney for the attorney general's office uh, precluded her from having the time to get away. But we have two guests with us. One of them is a person that I am related to. Um, as a disclaimer, I need to mention that uh, he is my cousin. Uh, his name is Monty Frank, and we are also joined by another Native person who lives in the area up here, and her name is uh, Missy Whiteman. And I would like to have Monty begin by introducing himself and then Missy. Bozu, Awan, Inihagaz, Monty Frank, Indigo, Malax, Ndujiba, Shiminasing, and Da, Iwadi Dash Tribal Emergency Management, and Inoke, Makwadudum. In our Ojibwe language, that's traditional greeting, as you know, Cousin Don. And uh, my name is Monty Frank. I live here in the Shiminasing District here, which we call District 2A for the Malax Band of Ojibwe, which is on the southeast corner of Lake Malax. And I work for the Malax Band of Ojibwe's Tribal Police Department and Emergency Management and have been a very humble servant of the Malax Band for the past 32 years. Dosinana Missy Whiteman. I belong to the Northern Arapaho and Kikfu Nations. I'm a writer, director, producer, as well as visual artist, public artist, uh, community advocate, activist. I shouldn't say activist, um, but advocate for many issues such as boarding school, missing and murdered. And I also work a lot with youth in helping them to um, find creative process through filmmaking uh, to share their stories. Well, thank you, Monty. And thank you, Missy. And thank you, everyone, for joining us here for Counter Stories. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why we decided to come up the first time that we got together to come up here to the Mille Lacs Band is um, to talk about the topic of uh, murdered and missing um, Indian women. And I know that uh, I think one of the, one of the last times that we were together when we were still recording with NPR, um, we actually had a uh, state representative, Mary Kunish join us to talk about when they had started the uh, murdered and missing Indian women's task force here in the state of Minnesota but I think this time, the reason why we were talking about this topic is a little bit more closer to home. And, um, you know, so just to provide some some background information, um, you know, from statistics from uh, 2016, because I was trying to look to see what some of the current latest data was on uh, murdered and uh, missing Indian women. And what I could find was from about two, uh, 2016 that... Um, Indigenous women, you know, girls and older, are murdered 10 times higher than all other ethnicities in the United States. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women. That's uh, data from the Centers for Disease Control. 
More than four out of five indigenous women, American Indian and Alaskan Native, have experienced violence. Um, 84.3%, and that's according to the National Institute of Justice report. More than half of indigenous women experience sexual violence, 56.1%. More than half of the indigenous women in this country have been physically abused by their intimate partner. That's 55.5%. Less than half of indigenous women have been stalked in their lifetime, 48.8%. And indigenous women are 1.7 times more likely than Anglo women to experience violence. And Indian indigenous women are two times more likely to be raped than Anglo-American women. And the murder rate of indigenous women is three times higher than Anglo-American women. Those are some very grim statistics. And back in May, late May, as I was getting ready to go to bed, my phone rang and my cousin Monty called me. And the news that Monty shared with me is not the kind of news that anyone wants to hear. And Monty, if you don't mind, I'd like you to share what it was that you called me about. On, um, on May 26th at uh, six in the morning, there was a standoff occurring for which the Brooklyn Park Police Department SWAT unit had to be come in and actually had to breach the apartment. What I didn't know uh, at that time that the woman who got killed um, in that standoff was my daughter who was 24 years old. Um, uh, Nada uh, was one who uh, had a very unique life of coming up into a we know a very troubling world because of what her life had been before she came into my life and, and her mother's life, Jen, um, through a very uh, troubling foster care system of a, of a very large metropolitan county, which was known as failing many, many American Indian children uh, for lack of care or for proper placement. Um, and so as her, as she came into our lives. Um, so when you say she came into your life, do you mean? Adoption. Okay. Adoption, right. adoption at that time. And, and, and we uh, adopted her and a sister of hers who were 10 and three at the time. And little, unfortunately, as I learned that this large metropolitan county has a history of placing or quickly adopting uh, Native American children uh, for the lack of word of getting them off their case books and not providing full histories on their backgrounds. And especially of the adoptive parents of the adoptive children. Oh, of the adoptive. Yes. Children. Especially okay. in their uh, abilities, emotionally, social, socially, and, and, and just basically, you know, ability to, to be on their own. And as we had them in our homes, uh, not only did we start watching, especially with Nada, this, this package just become unraveled. And I was lucky enough working for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe where Cheryl Whitehawk had come to the Mille Lacs Band and given us so much training in understanding historical trauma, colonization, and the most important thing, and uh, uh, RAD for, uh, you know, for, for attachment disorders. And the most important thing at that time was understanding what we were seeing for Native children, which was what was called second generational fetal alcohol syndrome, which was a, a brand new type diagnosis where the frontal lobe of the child was affected just enough that on the outside, they appeared very normal, but, but mentally they will never have impulse control. And because of all the gifts that Mille Lacs Band gave us, we were able to start identifying and seeing these behaviors but as many of us who work, you know, in Indian country and especially in, in, in human services type work, you know, um, as we saw her behavior starting to come out and escalate, 
And this came out in suicidal behaviors. This came out in, in the reactive attachment. And it got to the point where the safety of our, of our home um, had to be looked at. And we had to make a very gut-wrenching decision to look for out-of-home placement because we just could not provide the safety and there was not the resources for behavioral health care or services here in this area. And I think that's something that's very typical for all Indian country when we hear about cases like this. And But the problem was these, because of Cheryl Whitehawk said, you know, these second generation of fetal alcohol children don't really need a, a like a behavioral health unit or like a structured facility. They need a little bit of guidance. And there wasn't really any place at the time for these identified children at that time here. Well, not just that. I think that also um, at that time, if I'm re- remembering correctly, because I, I was commissioner of, of uh Health and Human Services at Mille Lacs here at that time, that uh, children who suffered from that, um, it was not a mental health diagnosis. And so part of the difficulty is that there's no funding then. Exactly. There's no funding to, uh, to work effectively with those, with those kids. And, and then as her placements went on and no placement could really meet the needs of her because of the of the no impulse control, um, that as placements went on for her, she would then you know get to a point where she would run. She would run from these places, and and fortunately, her upbringing was in this large metropolitan county in in in, in the metro area, and she would run and find possible relatives um, with this as. Time went on, unfortunately, in her life because of that high or no impulse control. We know at that time when we looked at the MMIW issue coming to Indian country that young girls like my daughter were very susceptible to human trafficking because of the no impulse control, because of survival and what they had to do and and. My journey then went to a very dark side for almost two years, which Nada was then, for lack of a word, was being human trafficked between ages of 14 and 16. And I will, you know, and the gifts of the missing and, and exploited children's network were just an amazing resource for folks who had children who were on run and they were putting flyers out. Um, Patty Wetterling was an amazing advocate um, for supporting what we were going through. Um, And at times we would find her and then she'd be back into the facility and with, with time she would flee again and run. And it finally got to a point where uh, we would find postings for use on certain media sites that were for probably human traffickers um, for that with her. Um, And then towards the end of that, um, all tracking of her went blank, went silent. There was nothing on any adult social media sites for her for being human trafficked and everything went quiet. And as a parent and somebody who works in a tribal public safety field, you know, that was the worst experience at that time in my life because everybody who worked in MMIW or human trafficking said when you lose this type of contact with a child like this, uh, the end result is very grim. And finally, uh, Patty Wedling was finally just, she just said, Monty, it's been this long. And I said, Patty, what do I need to be ready for? And she, in her life was like, prepare for a funeral. And the fact that, you know, we, that we may never find her alive. You know, we may never find her because this was a big issue for Indian country. Luckily, um, my brothers and sisters in public safety, I don't care what uniform they wore, EMS, fire, emergency management, law enforcement, all were resources. Everyone who I knew in the metro area um, 
give us her, give us her picture, give us her flyer. You know, if we're on a fire scene, if we're on an EMS call, if, you know, we, we, we will keep an eye out for her. And, and then at the time, uh, St. Paul Police Department, who had an investigator in human trafficking, called me up and said, Monty, I think we may have a possible lead to your daughter. We can't say anything, but we're going to go check a house out. And uh, so St. Paul, this investigator went over and got into the residence and to their searching, uh, found a young woman hiding behind a couch um, basically being hid and it turned out to be Nada and she was alive. As you look at this story, um, that trauma never left her and she struggled and struggled, you know, as best she could being a survivor of human trafficking. Um, and one of the memories I have was her 20th birthday. Um, we were at a restaurant together and, you know, and she looked at me and she said, dad, you know, the only reason I'm alive is because of you. Because I had a brother and sisterhood of public safety responders who were there for me and were willing to help. And I know that in Indian country, that doesn't happen. That first public safety contact whether it's a deputy sheriff, a local police officer, a BIA officer, a tribal officer. We know that resources are stretched thin. We know that the belief of, oh, she's just out playing with her friends, she'll come back, and how much time they will actually put into these cases is one of the things where I know happens to others, but in my case, having this brother and sisterhood of public safety was a, a a gift I had, which so many other Native families do not. And that first report they give, it may go someplace, it may go, it may, it may no, not go anywhere. So as time went on for her, she, she struggled with so much of this trauma. And finally, she was up in a facility up in Bemidji and it just happened, it finally couldn't be held in and a properly chained trained investigator who had been to corner house training and there is a very wonderful place called uh, hope house i believe it's called in bemidji that is for sexual assault survivors for interviewing and this investigator sat with nada and he figured it might be uh, a few hour interview this lasted for a day and a half she finally let out everything that she had experiences in those years where we presume she was now for sure an MMIW and probably deceased. And to get that report and to read in graphic, graphic, graphic detail, everything that was done to her is something that no, no parent should, you know, should read, you know, to do that. But I needed to do understand what she had been through. And, you know, as her life, she had tried to cope as best she could with that, different relationships in her life. Um, and then unfortunately on, on that Wednesday morning, um, you know, unfortunately I found out that it was a murder-suicide and uh, she had been uh, shot and murdered with a high-powered rifle in her apartment. The suspect, I did not know, but uh, once he was barricaded, I was informed that he did commit suicide. So it is a sense of, many people said, at least there's closure, Monty. Many MMIW cases are unsolved and will we'll go on with families grieving with, without answers. And in my situation, even though I have lost, you know, my daughter to, to this, uh, I do have closure. And when I was, had the a gift of testifying to on the national MMIW committee under, under the, the current administration, um, Unfortunately, most of us didn't realize we were only giving so, so many minutes to say our comments about MMIW. But I remember the one thing that in, in my story 
for what was, what was recorded and saved was that, that, that I, I was able to get my daughter back alive, which everybody on that committee, just the room went silent because the rarity of giving, of getting an MMIW victim back alive is so, so rare, which I did not realize that, that what I thought was a amazing moment in my life of getting her back alive to hundreds and hundreds of grieving family members of MMIW will never get or never have in, in, their, in their lives. And, and not just the fact that, well, I mean, there's, there's so much to unravel with that, Monty. I mean, the fact that you called me and, and what, you know, what, what made that so powerful is that I had just found out earlier in the day that uh, my aunt had passed away. And she's a very well-respected elder here in Mille Lacs. And my sister had gotten in touch with me and, and told me that she had passed. And started her journey. So when you called me and said you had bad news, I thought you were telling me about that same person. And then you just kind of blurted out that, you know, no, my daughter was murdered. And that just kind of threw me for a loop, you know, because the, this issue of, of, of missing and, and murdered Indian women not, hits so close because she was your adopted daughter. And it happened down here in the Twin Cities. But, you know, it's touched so many of our lives. Um, I, had a, I have a cousin. I had a cousin from Mille Lacs who back when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and, and we lived in North Minneapolis at the time, um, relocated from the rest. She would, had moved from the reservation. She was staying with us. And she uh, was with us for about a week, and she went to some bar in St. Paul, and um, she didn't come home. Well, the next day, we were contacted. My parents were contacted by the St. Paul police. They found her body on um, on some railroad tracks in St. Paul, not far from this bar. Um, they reported that she had left with two gentlemen, and then they found her the next day um, dead. Um, this was in the 60s, early 60s. And to this day, that murder has never been solved. Listening to all these consultations for MMIW, and that's the one thing I constantly heard from other people calling in on the state committee or is never unsolved. And that is, you know, and to me, I'm sitting here as, as a father who has lost his daughter to murder, that I'm one who isn't having to sit there and worry about that. Because unfortunately, it was a murder-suicide, and that was just horrible in itself. But to know that there are our own relatives out there with the, with the 580 tribes who are waiting for an answer and may never get an answer. And that's a unique thing. And with my daughter, her Ojibwe name means she's a fierce, passionate woman. And the one thing that all the MMIW advocates who came up to the wake and the funeral um, just asked to say when I am ready to tell her story because her death should not be just a check in a box or a statistic. This is somebody, Don, in our family that you knew and most everybody knew her also. And it wasn't just a unfamiliar person. It hit home to you and I. And that's why I called you for, because you are family. And I will tell you the hardest phone call was to the grandparents. Being in this job, I've had to give death notices before in my time. And I've grieved with our family members who have lost ones who for medical calls, but to have to call the grandparents. And there's no easy way to tell them that their granddaughter is dead because with their health issues and hearing and all that, as we know, as, as our elders age, you know, there's just wasn't an easy way to say it. And I was very honored that their health was up to have them to make it to the wake and the funeral to, to send NATO off in a good way off to the place where our loved ones go. 
to be happy and knowing that they're washed of all their traumas. They're living they're now with all their relatives for thousands, thousands of years. And, and that's what, that's what our, our teaching tell us. Well, I, I want to thank you for sharing that story first and foremost for my, um, for, for, for my home community. Um, the sharing of that story is, um, and the sharing of stories, regardless of where they are, um, it's a gift. And so I thank you for that gift of sharing that with us. Um, also because of the wisdom that it carries on so many different levels. I think what is striking me right now from the statistics you shared, Don, at the beginning that we definitely had spoken Mm. to in in a previous podcast, um, but I think we take for granted this assumption of safety. It's a privilege that we share in many places across, that some of us get to share many places across our state and across this country that communities of color don't always get to share. The assumption of safety, it is inconceivable that, that a, a, a child could go missing in the sight in the psyches of most of of all parents, um, and that was something that would go into a privileged mindset. Except our proximity to um, you know just our, our because of the data, our proximity to to having to deal and process the fact that that it's grim in the beginning, right? You, we we don't get the luxury of the assumption of safety. We don't get the luxury of the assumption that this will work out. We don't get the luxury of all of these different things because the data is so clear, because the lack of care, that there has to be some kind of connection in order for us to get um, the kind of, not just justice, right? We're not even to that part yet. We're, we're still in a place of trying to, to find babies, right? Um, and so I think that's striking and something that um, many uh, of, of our listeners, particularly those who are, who are from dominant cultures space, you, we take for granted um, the, the assumption of safety, the assumption that, that this, this, this must work out because a child is involved. We have a different sensibility when kids are involved. We do, we're willing to do the things we aren't willing to do as adults when kids are involved, except those numbers don't play out for all of us. And so sharing this story as a gift in that regard. The only other thing, the, the other thing that comes to my mind that, that just, that's just racking my brain right now is that when we talk about women in our society who have been um, uh, sexually assaulted, um, we had talked when we did our, our, our uh, earlier episodes of our murdered and missing women that um, in the aggregate, that's one in seven. That alone is already problematic and makes a whole lot of folks go, wow. The fact that three times that number, according to the data that you just shared for, for, for native communities, um, should should be even more egregious, and yet um, we don't see the the reaction. We don't see that as as um, being in the front of mind of so many folks. They get to put this onto a shelf. And we don't even see it. I mean, we don't even see it in our day to day life uh, in any way, shape, or form. Right? I mean, I think a lot of people when we say MMIW, missing and murdered Indigenous women, people go, oh, "Okay, yeah, I've he- I've heard of that movement, but what does that mean?" What do they do, Missy, if you're able to, to share some of that with us as well? Um, it's what we do, but it's also um, our experiences as Indigenous women. You know, that's my perspective. Also having a personal connection to, it's more, for me, it's more than a movement um, because of my personal experience, my personal history. You know, when you were talking about the statistics, I'm like, check, check, check. Um, for me, like, I'm very fortunate to be sitting here with all of you. Um, and it's something that I don't share publicly because, um, you know, for me, people look at me and they're like, you're this person who's in the forefront of a lot of different movements. You're in the forefront of like media, film, art, but it's like, because I have visibility, because I have visibility, because I value my life now, um, I want to make the most of it, but I also want to help, um, to utilize my platform to give visibility to this issue um, and also to help other young women, young indigenous women um, to see that they have a path too. So I'm creating that path for them, but also giving them that platform to talk about some of the issues that they may have. Um, For me, you know, I was 25 and um, I was attending the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And at that time, you know, I really made a lot of life decisions that you know, I don't make today, definitely, but it shouldn't be the reason why, you know, somebody um, 
is in danger. You know, if we talk about the statistics, if we look at that, we say, okay, well, anyone else who may be of the dominant culture um, can go out and drink and go to bar and have fun and feel safe and be okay and get home okay. You know, but for me, you know, I didn't, I almost didn't make it home. Um, I had drove um, from my apartment to um, Edina to pick up a friend who was at a, a, at a party at a hotel. And I saw somebody stalking me, you know, I saw headlights, I noticed them following me. And I was like, they're really close. Um, and at that time, you know, of course, I was a little bit impaired, but enough to know that somebody was following me. And I pulled over and somebody all of a sudden got out, you know, a uh, like pulled open my car, got out of their vehicle, pulled, pulled open my uh, car door and um, came at me like they were the police. And at that time, um, there was a lot of undercover police that were pulling people over for um, drinking and driving. And I thought, really, that's what this is. And the person, you know, the demeanor, everything, plain clothing, even the car to me looked like it was a police car, maybe undercover um, I went into the car with them. I mean, it wasn't by my choice. It was by force. And at that time, you know, I was more concerned about getting in trouble for drinking and driving. And so I agreed. I went, I went in the car um, and we were driving and I thought we were going like either to the Dinah precinct or downtown Minneapolis. And I realized after about maybe five minutes that we were just driving around. And this person started talking to me and said, you know, do you have money? You know, I can, if you pay me. And I was like, I don't have any money. I'm broke. I'm a student. And they said, I give me your license and, you know, give me your identification. And I, I gave them my license. I gave them my school ID. And then um, they said to give me their bank, my bank card. And I thought that was really weird. And something kind of like triggered in my, in my mind, like this person is not who they say they are. And, um, as soon as I figured that out, I was like, this person is going to rape me. This person is going to beat me up. And this person is going to leave me for dead. And the first thought that I had was, you know, please let my family find my body. So this was a long time ago. This was in the early 2000s. This is before missing and murdered. At that moment, I just let go. And it was like, this person is going to do what they're going to do. And I just have to accept that this is my fate. So within that moment, you know, a lot of people call it like, this is my awakening moment. Like for me and on the spiritual level, it's like, yes, this was my awakening moment where all of a sudden I was just fully awake. I was fully aware. And something was talking to me and saying, you're going to be okay. You just have to keep crying. You still, you have to keep doing what he says. And, you know, one of the things, the really strange thing, you know, um, associated with like the money and, you know, all of that, like what really triggered me was when he said, you know, when I told him, I was like, I don't have any money. He said, well, we'll think of another way. And so for me, like, that's really was like another trigger that was like, okay, this person is extremely dangerous. And because it was like, there was like a calmness in his voice um, that I don't think that anyone else, you know, probably had ever experienced. Like, I don't think it's an experience a lot of people get to have, but when you do, you, you know, the people like that are dangerous. So we ended up back driving around and going back to my truck. Um, and at that time, you know, I, I knew that area. Like I know Edina used to live around, you know, that area uh, for a short period of time. And so I was able to lead him back to my truck. And I was still sitting in the car. He got out. He went to my vehicle and started rummaging through it, looking for like drugs, looking for money, looking for whatever he could. And in my mind, it's like, okay, I can run. I can take his car because he left the keys in the ignition. I still, to this day, I'm like, why would you do, you know, why would you do that? But then part of me was like, well, this person still could be a cop. I don't want to get in trouble with the police. Um, because, you know, native, you know, our native people, we don't have a good history with police either. You know, back in the day, you know, in, you know, in South Minneapolis, people would get thrown in uh, trunks. Uh, people were killed and they're left, you know, along the river. So I thought, I don't want to be that person. Um, so I ended up um, just running. I just got out. I ran and um, 
at that point, you know, I, I looked behind me and, you know, well, actually, let me back up because um, before I ran, I actually talked to him and I said, you know, please let me go. You know, I just, you can take my car, you can take anything. And I actually like approached him, which is something you shouldn't do. And he pulled me in a police hold and then he threw me in the back of his car again. And he went back to my truck. And that's when I decided, you know, I was going to run. And I'm like, I'm just going to grab the keys because I don't want to be back in that car with him. And I'm just going to run. And so I grabbed the keys and I ran and I looked back and I saw him stand up and notice that I was running and I kept running forward. And I was like, there's nothing in front of me. We were in a warehouse um, district and I was like, there's nothing in front of me. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just going to keep running. And I looked back and he kept getting closer. And about the third time that I looked back, he was like almost on me. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I looked forward and there was two sets of headlights that just like came straight at us and they happened to be cop cars. And it was like one of those things where it was like, I knew I was like, this was like the most, you know, when you say like, this is never going to happen to me, you know, especially for like indigenous or native women or native um, young women. It's like it, it happens. So he, he's chasing you. You get to the cop car. They got him then, right? Yeah, they got him. But... But I had to prove, I was the one who had to prove that there was a crime committed. Wow. So after all that, but you as a woman still had to prove to the police what you just went through. Because he told the police that I was his girlfriend and we were fighting over drugs. And so I told the police that one of the police officers that was there, he was like, I feel like he's lying to me. He's like, I feel like because of your story and what you're telling me, you know, he's like, I don't care that you're drinking. I don't care. I'm, you're not going to get in trouble. I just want to know what happened. And so he took me in the car and we drove around where he, where we had driven and he was like, okay, so tell me what happened. And I explained to him and he said, okay, so we need to find your ID. We need to find your your IDs, and then also to find your bank card. So if we can find that, we can arrest him. And so they searched him again, and they found it in his sock. Oh, wow. And so luckily, like, he did get arrested. But, you know, like, what Monty talked about is, like, the trauma and what you experience after. Because for me, it was like I couldn't go out at night. I couldn't drive at night. I slept during the day. You know, forget about going to school, you know, forget about uh, going to classes, forget about even telling anyone about what happened. Uh, luckily for me, you know, my dad and I, we had like such a good relationship and a close relationship that he knew the right people to take me to. So he took me to Stephanie Autumn, who actually works on the task force. And at that time, uh, she was working for Victims Advocate Service and she helped me with the trauma. You know, she gave me like a CD or at that time, like a tape. And then she also got me a Rule 25 assessment um, out of the Twin Cities and then um, just helped me to try to live every day. She's like, this is what you need to do to take care of yourself, to help with the trauma. But for me, I was really lucky. It's like Monty says, if you're networked in, you're really fortunate that you have those resources. But what if somebody who may um, not be connected to, her, to their family, they're not going to have those resources. They might, may not even know where to go or even know to ask for help because if they're in their addiction, they're not going to be able to say, oh, I'm really, my addiction is like kicking into high gear. What do I do? You know? So for me, I'm like, um, I would rather like not drink myself to death, you know, and deal with this. Um, because my mom, you know, drank herself to death. And I'm like, that's not the legacy that I want to live. That's not the life that I want to live. Um, so, and I just thought about my dad, because I'm like, like you said, Monty, it's like, I don't want to worry my, my family like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I just felt bad for him and how hard it must have been for him. You know, there's so much there. I mean, and and just to, to provide some um, little background for, for folks who may not have understood uh, part of what Missy mentioned is in one of my previous lives, I was uh, director of the chemical health division. And for those who are maybe wondering, a rule 25 assessment is a 
um, an alcohol and drug assessment to determine if someone is um, is either uh, addictive or you know a casual user or whatever. But it's it's just a chemical dependency assessment to determine. Um, it's it's one of the hoops. I mean, just to, to the the systemic space, right? Yeah. We, we 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 can't. We can't take the presence of your need alone. We have to, to in order to, to um, connect to service, you know, in some cases, or to push you and steer you towards a certain service. I mean, there's just, there, there are these, these connections that we can't just look out and say that help is needed and, and offer it. Because these, these issues are not typical. You know what I mean? Like these issues for missing and murdered women, especially if they come home, are not typical. And I don't think, I, I feel like while, you know, looking at a task force is important, that's like 20 steps way behind than where we are right now and where we should be. And not to mention just like women not coming forward because how many times have you had to relive that experience when you've had to describe it to how many police and how many people at court, right? I mean, that victim shaming and that victim blaming, it prevents people from coming forward with their stories. And then I think you, you want to, we complicate that. And I don't, I don't mean we collectively, but how often have I mentioned in, in our other counter story podcasts where American Indians are invisible, right? I've mentioned that time and time again, that when we look at, usually when we look at statistics and we can look at Minnesota, wherever they point, put statistics out, it covers African-Americans, Asians, Latinos, and American Indians are missing, you know, and, and we're told else. that we're, well, well, yeah, during CNN, during the COVID <laughs> thing, we were something else in terms of the vote down in Arizona. But usually, you know, our numbers, we make up less than 2% of the total population nationwide, probably about 1.6% here in the state of Minnesota. And and are told that, you know, statistically our numbers are so small, we don't show statistically up. Statistically insignificant. Add, exactly. And you add on to that, that reports about our community in terms of, of uh, we're killed at a higher rate by police officers than African-Americans. But we don't know that because that, um, when's the last time you heard of a police shooting of a white cop and a native person. Never, because it's never covered in the media. We are totally invisible, so it compounds that. But, I mean, in your story, Missy, it points out all, there were so many interesting, not interesting, but dynamics happening. The fact that you had to prove to these police officers what you were saying was in fact what happened over your perpetrator's statement just stunned me and talks to that, to the uh, gender power difference in this country in terms of men's dominance over women. And even in the court system, even in the court system, I had to go a year of learning about the court system as a victim and also learning about how if somebody has been in the system for a long time, they can manipulate the system. And every time that I went to court, I had a court appointed uh, advocate. And I also had Stephanie at my side, too, who's, you know, she's my adopted mom now. But at that time, it was like I needed that support, but I also needed the community to step in, which they did in order for us to have a solid case. And this whole thing took a year. It took me being out of the city, it took the court system, you know, saying, okay, well, we'll give you this continuance because you don't have an attorney. And okay, we'll give you this continuance because you want to find a new attorney. And so it's like a month, a month, a month turned into a year. And by the time we went to trial, he took the plea bargain. Mm. So the case was built so strongly that, you know, he actually had a girlfriend who was native in the community. She attended the same church that I attended, you know, all nations church. Oh, wow. And the pastor was like, I know this man, I know his girlfriend, I know the mother, let me connect you with them. And so it's the mother who, who said, well, this person also would go to the nineties and pick up two spirit relatives and beat them and rob them. Mm. And this person was also known to rob 
different stores, corner stores. If you, if you, you know, look at his rap sheet, it doesn't say this. It just says, you know, small armed robbery or just something. But because he knew the system, you know, this is what it was. So he pretty much served his sentence. He had maybe like four months probate or still in jail and then probation, which was like 18 months. And so meanwhile, I was trying to live my life, trying to pick up the pieces, trying to heal. And I would go on Chicago, you know, in the park off of Chicago and Franklin, and he would be on the corner. And I'm like, dear victim advocates, why is this person free? And why am I in hiding? And she's like, well, it'll just take time. It'll take time. We'll catch him. He'll get a dirty UA and he'll be back in, in, you know, in jail. And it took, I'd say almost like four to six months for that to happen. What does a UA mean? A urinalysis test. So I just wanted to talk about the court system and what, what happened after, uh, what happened after everything. Um, so with the courts, dealing with the courts and also having the plea bar- bargain being taken and having a dirty a- UA, um, what the prosecutor did, which was pretty amazing, is that they had him take um, a DNA sample and it was added to a bank. And so this was something that the prosecutor was setting up for policy, for policy change. And his UA was actually, or his uh, blood sample was linked to three other, to three rape cases, stalking cases, rape cases of three women. Um, he stalked these women and then he also uh, raped them, went into their houses, raped them, and then you know, disappeared. And so there are three women that were able to know who their perpetrator was at this time. Unfortunately, one of them, uh, the statute of limitations had run out, Um, but there were two that were able to be pulled together into one case. Um, I had the opportunity to take the stand. I had the opportunity to talk about my experience. And then also for the other, the other women they were able to sleep at night. For me, it was about standing in the forefront for them so that, you know, they had some sort of closure. So, you know, moving forward, there's actually a law in the state of Minnesota. It means that if you stalk someone, if you are somebody who rapes someone or kidnaps or anything, you know, of this nature, and you're found guilty, your DNA is going to go into a data bank. And that's going to be something that can link people. So they actually linked him to like robberies. He linked him to because there was blood that he left behind from breaking glass. Um, another one was a cigarette butt. There was DNA on a cigarette butt that they had found that was his. So like his rap sheet was a lot longer. And so one of the things um, with the court system, it's like we don't think we also don't think that victims have to deal with the court system. And right now, you know, especially in the state of Minnesota, where's the funding for the victim's advocates? Where's the victim's advocate funding? You know, do we get, do the women get this anymore? I mean, that's my question. Everybody just, I feel like people just rely on you guys as the victims and your advocates to come up with these policies, right? Because now people hear about that data bank and they're like, oh, that's a great idea. But how many years did it take for that to come to fruition? How many people had your experience before that became policy, right? I mean, that's a step that I don't think people think of is just the amount of people behind the scenes, the amount of people who have that firsthand experience who take the time out of their lives to become advocates. Yeah, and so for me, people see the forefront. They see the work, um, for example, in May, um, we had a billboard campaign with Nadana Rose Green who is a phenomenal photographer who also does work around missing and murdered and of women and highlighting women, um, not only as, as we are as ceremonial women, but also not exploiting us or having us be, you know, sex objects. Because I think the misogyny that is here in the U S misogyny that is also in our tribal communities perpetuates violence towards women, um, you know, if we're a matriarchal society, if we come from these roots, we should also adhere to those uh, structures. And so if we're looking at, you know, women warriors, if we're looking at those societies and we, if we look at those structures, our elder women held status. Our elder women were the ones who made the call. And so with her work, she really amplifies that 
So I also wanted to amplify her work by sharing that space, by sharing billboards with her and talking about how missing and murdered stems to boarding schools. So in Carlisle, which was the first boarding school in the U.S., they would actually farm out kids. So they, it was called farming. So they would teach these kids, not teach them. They were forced to learn um, slave labor, like farming, um, you know, trade, whatever trade work, work was there back in the day. And a lot of the girls were sent out to be nannies for families. And they were sent out to farms or sent out to rich people, whoever, and they never went back. And so this is really where um, human trafficking started for indigenous people was in the boarding school era. So when I talk about missing mur murdered, I also talk about boarding school era. I also talk about media. I talk about like Pocahontas being the most celebrated missing and murdered indigenous woman in the U.S. She was kidnapped. She was 14. She was kidnapped. She was held captive. She didn't willingly she didn't, fall in love with John Smith and no, across no, the ocean. No, no. She was forced to be, um, you know, it was actually about resources. So she was traded, you know, for that. And so her name was, um, excuse me to my relatives who are from the Pohatatin Poha tribe. And so her name is Matato. Matt Oaka, and it's the East Coast, Coast tribe, so it's not one that we really know. But if you want to look up on Instagram, I have the campaign on my Instagram of the missing and murdered um, billboards. And the same with the story of Sacagawea, right? I mean, there is a story of when um, the dog that was on that trip was kidnapped. And uh, Lewis and Clark or whoever it was, like, went and tried to barter back for the dog, not for Sacagawea, who was also kidnapped with the dog. And that was a story I hadn't heard. I mean, this is all stuff like I'm pushing for like critical race theory in schools because this is stuff that we should have learned, you know, and just kind of how it still relates. It still relates to our lives today. Because a lot of Native women are seen as exotic, you know, to mm -hmm. dominant society, did not uh, dominant culture. We are, we are, we're an object. And, and, and you know, Don, the one thing that you said very clearly was the fact of they have to prove. Yeah. And I think that goes right back into MMIW for the 585 recognized tribes is that when a family calls 911, I think the stories I have heard on these consultations is they have to prove by that their daughter, their auntie, right. their mother is truly missing and to be believed that they this is not just a oh they're out wherever drinking right. whatever I mean, they have to prove that's what was extraordinary about your you know the story you shared with us monty is the fact that you're a part of that fraternity um provided that opportunity where you got that support where those of us who aren't generally aren't believed. Exactly. And uh, not generally, but aren't believed, and we don't get those kind of resources. And that's one thing I think I look back, and I, when I tell the story, I always tell them that, that I am the rare, a true rarity because of what I have learned to do because of what I watched with the Mille Lacs Band of building relationships, building bridges through all the, the three tribal chair I have served under with Wewanabi, with Marge, and with Melanie. I have watched this gift of them build relationships and wanted us as employees to do the same thing. And that's been just being role modeled to and following that path I have watched with my own eyes over my journey of all this time where you're exactly right, Don, that so many do not have that. And they're... And they're seen as less than because they get put on that umbrella of what we think Native communities are like. And I know, as you always said many times, Don, you know, when you meet one tribe, you meet one tribe. And mm -hmm. I think just the fact of when you meet one Native family, you think they're all. Because I think mm -hmm. that those passed down stories of dominant society of how the 580 tribes are and how all of our families are. Right. And granted, we are full of high A scores. We are full of historical trauma. We are full of 
colonization. We're full of relocation. We are full of termination. And we know our stories from our old ones have said time and time again, it takes seven generations to get over every trauma we have been through. And as Chief Executive Melanie Benjamin said so eloquently in her last day in the band address two years ago, that that trauma is genetically passed down through that, what we have lived through to the next generation. I think there's a through line throughout all of the conversations on missing and murdered women in various communities that we've covered so far, and that is um, the lack of consequence. Um, the, the, and, and I don't just mean that in a punitive sense, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, you get away with it. You get away with it, not just in terms of the law enforcement side of it, but in the communal mm-hmm. side of it. There's a, there's a, there's a, a sense that um, it's easier, right? If I'm sitting there and I'm planning to do something, you know, dubious, whatever it is, I take a look and see what's gonna, what's less risky. And unfortunately, it just hasn't proven to be risky. Um, uh, a lot of my family comes from a town in Mombayu, uh, in Mississippi called Mombayu. And they worked on an agreement that basically said, if you leave us alone, um, this is post, this is in the Reconstruction era, if you leave us alone, we'll vote for whoever you tell us to vote for. We'll, we, we won't cause any political strife. You just stay on your side of the tracks. We'll stay on our side of the tracks and it'll be fine. Um, what we saw is as that community began to be prosperous, and this is coming up for me largely because um, in getting the tour and look around uh, Malax today, the, the self-direction and autonomy and, and, and sovereignty on display and mm. control of land, the, the, the control of certain resources. I, it, it almost brought me to tears. I was quiet in the back of the car um, because I wish that for my community who every, every single time that's happened, um, we see massacres. Tulsa, autonomy. Mount Bayou is another example. The reign of terror that came down because of self-autonomy direction and the fact that there would be no recourse or recompense. Um, and this isn't a space where at the time, black folks outnumbered white folks eight to one. It's one of the reasons why Mississippi's, uh, um, you know, violence had to be so absolute. And so I just see this through line when we talked to trans, our, 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 our trans guest who came in um, and talked about that space. I see a through line in this pattern of, of I get away with it because there's not a care. Um, if I see it for the for native folks, you see folks come on to res and do their dirt and leave. And there's, there's not... Uh, there's no consequence politically, legalistically, um, you know, or even hood justice. I mean, at least in this case of Okoe and a few other places, there was some semblance of hood justice that came about. You, 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 you are going to lose something. And that was the stance that had to be taken. But then what happened after that? People began to police folks who were standing up to defend themselves. And it started this whole other cycle. And so now you no longer have that tool. Um, you know, I, 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 I shudder to think that this is happening already, but I also shudder to think of what happens when we stand up for our own and protect our own in this way. Um, the onus and the, and the attention is not going to go on the people coming on to perpetrate. It's going to go on to us defending ourselves as the uh, not the correct way to go about it. Well, what option do you have left? This isn't just something that happens on reservations, <laughs> Right. I mean, from both of your stories, that happened outside of the reservations. And I think when folks who are not familiar with these issues hear, oh, missing and murdered indigenous women, they think it's not going to affect me. That happens there. And it doesn't. It's not isolated to one location. No, I think we definitely see in our tribal nations that we are very mobile communities, unfortunately, Sometimes employment, sometimes safety, sometimes family uh, just makes people have to relocate to centers where there's maybe more opportunity or more family. And I think we have seen that many in all, in all, especially the northern tribes, to the very large metropolitan area for different opportunities. So, you know, they may have spent a lot of their life on, on the northern tribal nations or any of the tribal nations who call Minnesota home. You know, and unfortunately now live in an urban area. And unfortunately that presents a different safety issue because they are not as 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 we say, you know, we're they're not the dominant community as they were on the reservation. And I just think, you know, for you know, watching a very powerful stone of, of Yellowstone, which was one of the best episodes they ever did, was about a MMIW issue on the on the show, and it was so 
well done of this poor mother just frantic and calling all the relatives. And I think, and that's exactly what happens on a mission on most any of the 580 fairly recognized tribes is that that mom just bewildering herself to try to find what happened. And that was such a very powerful episode that they did just to bring light of that issue, especially for for this for the thing. And I think also as an American Indian Native father is that you know I'm finding out in this journey that that the majority of the advocates uh, for MMIW are are equates are, are are women, and to be a Native man, you know, Ojibwe man, going through this myself, you know, finding out we're not the typical ones who who are standing up, making the the statements, wearing the the red ribbon skirts to support that. So it's a unique role. I'm also finding myself in to say how. Now that I am now a a father of an MMIW victim, is where do us Native men, us Ojibwe men, fit into this movement, where we can now find a role? Because, you know, uh, I think that's the new thing that we want. Because I know my daughter's wish, as you were saying in your stories, Don, many of us, was she always wanted to get some type of human services educational and work with either homeless native youth or especially human trafficked teenage girls to let them know what she has survived and she was a survivor and she just was still struggling with the traumas that she was living with and unfortunately she just never got to see that dream of hers fulfilled and i guess that's where the other mma advocates who came up to my daughter's wake and funeral just asked of me as her father of going there to, to continue that, that passion as in her, as in her Ojibwe name says, to help maybe others understand what this journey has been through one. I think sharing your story, you know, like I think helping other men to just show like where you're at as far as what you had to go through as a man and as a father, because the thing about missing and murdered is that a lot of men don't see a place. They don't see their place because because they're not a victim. But, you know, where we do have a place is, you know, calling out other men and saying, hey, brother, you know, like, don't treat your woman like that. Or, hey, brother, you know, just stepping up and saying something. If you see something, say something, you know, and for women holding space, you know, we need to be protected. That's the one thing is like we need to feel safe. We need to feel protected. And just having your presence there is a lot. And what you're saying about policing, self-policing, is that something that we need to look at for missing and murdered? That's my question. And then also look at the casinos. Let's talk about the casinos being a human trafficking hotspot. I know it's controversial, but let's talk about that. Well, I think that there's, um, we've touched on, well, these were two powerful stories. Um, I have to admit, I don't think I was quite ready. for the impact of these stories, we've t- we've touched on this subject before in in our previous Counter Stories uh, podcast. Um, but these two stories, I think, brought this to a powerful um, exposes it in a way that most individuals don't get a chance to experience. Um, the closeness, reading those statistics is dry, it's shocking. Uh, these stories bring that to life. I mean, and it's the trauma, and it touches on so many veins, I think, on topics that we've talked about in counter stories before, because I have brought up the historical trauma, boarding schools. We talked about Carlisle. There are so many overlapping issues happening here in terms of the recovery that needs to happen in our own American Indian community, as well as other communities of color, I think suffered at the hands of the dominant culture and what they've put in place and in terms of their attempts to assimilate us, uh, take our land, take our language, take our children. And, you know, this repetitive thing has happened in many communities of color here in an experience that we've had as Americans. And the I, I, the stories that we heard this afternoon, 
are just two stories of some of the trauma that is a result, I think, of those relationships that we find ourselves and our communities in as we journey to try to heal from some of this trauma. And um, so I want to thank our guest. I'm Don Eubanks, associate, uh, oh, sorry, retired from Metropolitan State University, associate, associate of Dendros Group and cultural consultant. I'm Anthony Galloway, executive director of Arts Us and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. From, from me, thank you for allowing me to share the story. Um, that is what I think her, she would want to, to, to do for her, to not, to not to be forgotten, to not to be a check in the box and not a statistic. And to that, I say, give a weapon on Cousin Don. And this is Monty Frank with, the, with, with, with my Axer again. Uh, this is Missy Whiteman. Um, thank you again for allowing me to share my story. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Amper's Diverse Radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.